Yes, Lord, we do recognize you are the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. You're the creator of the universe. And you're the lover of our souls. Lord, you deserve all the glory. You deserve all the praise. You deserve everything we've got, Lord. You actually deserve more than we've got, but Lord, we just give you everything because you deserve it all. You're worthy of it all. And uh, thank you for this time together. We get to praise you and worship you for how good you are. Pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, welcome to church this morning. Welcome to Door of Hope. Uh, Hopefully it's a bit warmer in here than it is outside. Those of you who are participating online, welcome to you. I hope it's warm wherever you are, whether that's in bed or uh, um, in the shower or uh, on the couch or maybe in a sunnier, warmer part of the world, Uh, but you are welcome here as well. We've got a real treat this morning. Uh, We are wrapping up our series called Building a Theology, and as we've said all throughout the series, uh, we wanted to really end this series with the opportunity to just ask a whole lot of questions. And so we've invited back some of our speakers from throughout the series, and I'd like to welcome them to stage right now. Could you uh, join me in welcoming them as they come up? That's clapping. Yep, yep. Good. Thanks. Yes. Come on up, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Just Sometimes it helps to clap to... Tr- to cover the transition of people walking up on stage, so that's good. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, as I said, we've been um, inviting you to ask questions all through this series, and uh, by way of the QR code that's on your seat in front of you, um, or a a link that's been coming up in the chat if you've been joining us online, and we've we've collected all those questions, uh, and we've invited these guys back to, and I've, I've kind of prepared these questions for them and, and they've been had a chance to think through them and, and uh, provide some great responses. Uh, but also at the end of um, our little time together here, we would love it if um, we could allow an opportunity for you to ask questions live. Uh, so the QR code is right there in front of you all. Uh, if you're joining us online, the online host will post a little uh, link that you can click on and ask a question that way. Any time throughout the next uh, little period, as we're talking about the other questions that have come through throughout the series, feel free to add them in. I do see them coming up on here, so unlike last week, uh, we will actually get them through and it will work, and uh, uh, we'll have a chance at the end to ask any questions that may have come from you guys this morning. All right, fantastic. Well, let's get straight into it. We have uh, Dr. Andrew Fair on the end here. Uh, We have Dr. Christoph Ox and Dr. Sandy Hart right with us this morning. I am not a doctor. I am not a doctor. Um, But uh, I am helping these guys filter your questions so that they can answer them properly. So the first question goes to Christoph to open us up here this morning. The question came in, and it's the question of, can our theology change over time? Can our theology change over time? Well, if you mean by theology truth about God, then no, Jesus is Lord. If you mean by theology our thinking about God and the world, then yes. And I think there's an expectation in the Bible that our thinking would change, that our minds would be transformed 
um, that we move from milk to more hardier things, that we move into greater depths with God. And um, shout out to you for doing a panel like this where we actually have to think and you know, have the opportunity maybe to rethink some things that we thought sort of were set. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. Wow, all right. Quick question, quick answer. That's fantastic. Sandy, question for you. Would life be easier if Eve hadn't eaten the fruit? <laughs> well, poor Eve. If she hadn't have eaten it, Adam would have. <laughs> or Ben. This is where you do the mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's a good question. It's a good thinking through things, which I needed to do. Hypothetically, there's no correct answer because she did do it. But Adam could have stopped her. Get that as well. He's just as bad. He got the command as well. So don't blame Eve for everything. Uh, well, when I pondered the question, I thought, what was it like that Eve had and lost it was paradise, creation, walking with the animals, the trees, fresh water, fruit, face-to-face with God, no, heart, no problem with relationships. What did she lose? And that's where we live, in the world that lost because of her brokenness and our brokenness. Hope more comes up about that later. Is that okay for an answer? That's great. Okay, thanks. Great. Uh, Christoph. Another one for you. Uh, there have recently been high-profile Christians um, who we have seen have left the faith. Um, can people lose their salvation? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, as with all questions, there are some assumptions wrapped up with the question. I, whenever you get a question, just by the way, think through the assumptions that, behind, that are behind that question. And so with this question, can you lose your salvation? You are comparing salvation to a thing that you can lose. And the question that I want to always ask is, well, is that the case? Is salvation a thing that you can lose or like a job that you can lose? And Jesus says in John 17 that this is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is a relationship, an intimacy, a life, a way of life. And so the question then should perhaps be, can you stuff that up? Or can you turn your way, uh, can you turn your back to that relationship? Um, and if you phrase it like that, I think it's a bit of a fairer question. Because, you know, equally you, you might want to ask, um, if salvation is life, if salvation is a relationship, um, will God force himself on you if you don't want that anymore? And so that's my response. I personally think you can stuff it up. Um, that's my own personal... Um, it's hard to do because God is forgiving and patient and um, much more uh, patient than we are. Um, but I don't think he ultimately will force himself on you if you don't want that. That said, today is this day of salvation. Any moment you have the opportunity to re-engage with Jesus. Either of you have anything to add there? No, I just think that's a fantastic answer. <laughs> Glad I didn't get asked the question. <laughs> what he said. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Andrew, here's yours then. Uh, 
Does God give people mental health issues? Yeah, uh, look, um, I, think, I think my immediate response would be no, but I want to explain that a little bit further. Um, there's a consequence of what um, Adam and Eve did. And um, flowing from that choice to go their own way and not follow God's way, there um, is, a, is a consequence. And part of that consequence is sort of the degeneration of the beautiful creation that God made. Now, he's in the process of restoring it through Jesus, but we're not fully restored yet. And so we're still living in a situation where the consequences pervade. And um, this is where all illness comes from. I think, as I thought about this question, I think that um, I wanted to say this. Um, I work in the area of mental health and trying to help people with mental health problems. And one of the things that I've noticed is Christians are particularly difficult to help. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons for that is because we sometimes have a skewed view of our thought life and our spiritual life because those two things are mixed together. We're, we're a whole person. We're made up of all different parts. And it's sometimes hard to differentiate whether, for us, whether it's our spiritual life that's going awry or whether it's our mental health that's going awry or is it both. And I just wanted to say this, that the more um, doctors, scientists, um, researchers, the more I learn about mental health disease is that it's very, very similar to other diseases. There are um, understandable explanations. Um, genetics plays a huge role in both physical and mental health disease. And um, I think the corruption of our beautiful genetic makeup is a fundamental part of the fall. Something that's unique about humans is that God um, says that um, he made us in his image. And I've, over the years, as I've learned more and more about the human body and how it works and the mind and how it works, I've wondered uh, what, what are some of the elements of that image that we still retain. And one of the things that I think is this. Humans have this unique capacity to think about the way they think and then change their mind. And um, Christoph mentioned this earlier. We're, um, we're sort of called to be in a continual process of the renewing of our minds um, as Christians. So the struggle for many people is that they inherit some genetic disability in this area or um, uh, capacity, if you like, if the right circumstances in the environment occur to trigger a mental health illness for them. And then, of course, there are multiple environmental factors. Everything from whether you get glandular fever, which is a known trigger for major depressive illness, that virus, um, or all the way through to grief, for instance, can be a trigger. So all kinds of different environmental factors play a part, mixed with genetic predisposition and produce the illness. But I guess from a doctor's point of view, I look at that illness in the same way I look at pneumonia. It's caused by a bacteria and a temporary or permanent weakness in the immune system at that particular time, and there's particular treatments that I'm going to offer to the patient to help fix that problem. 
So I don't see mental illness, illness as primarily a spiritual problem. Of course, spiritual issues play a part in every illness that we have and we call out to God to help us in our distress and he does. Um, but uh, no, the, the, the short answer is God doesn't give us mental illness. He, he's not a God who um, just randomly dishes out bad things to his people. In fact, scripture teaches us he's a God who loves us so much that he gives us good things in our lives to help us cope this side of the full restoration. Great. Thank you. Uh, Sandy. Is doubt okay when it comes to faith? I'm glad it's not a mental illness. <laughs> Thanks for answering that, Andrew. Doubt is healthy. You got that? Doubt is healthy. It leads two ways to discover what is causing it. Obviously, that's there. But to discover the truth. And I like to think of that verse in John, 1 John 4, which says test the spirits. So just because we're answering questions today, which we've given some thought to and hopefully some prayer to and experience of, you need to check it out with the Spirit of God and with the Scriptures. Make sure you go to reliable sources. That would be the main issue. Because there is a crisis today of expertise where everyone is an authority in their own little world. Having said that, doubt can lead us to greater trust in God. I might doubt because of lack of confidence, not knowing, because of insecurities, and that needs to drive us to God, to Jesus, who says all the time, each day, come, come as you are. I do believe doubt invites us to be honest and open and to admit it to God. Um, I would suggest that most of us have had times of doubt. Where is God in this? Am I a believer? Will I go to heaven? We've all asked those questions of ourselves, and they invite us to discovery. But the other kind of doubt can lead to skepticism, cynicism, and a living in fear. And that is when we maybe need to get some help and, again, go to reliable sources. Doubt can be a discovery to greater things, greater faith, greater joy. Great. Thank you. Well done. So we've, uh, questions have started coming in here, so I can see them all coming through. So continue to add those in. We probably won't get to all of them, but I'll try and summarise a few and we'll try and answer as best as we can in just a moment. But uh, before we get there, there's a couple of other ones that we've prepared. Um, maybe Christoph could start this one and then uh, if Andrew has more to add or... Um, you could do this. This is a question coming a few weeks ago. When is divorce and remarriage permissible? When is divorce uh, permissible? Um, well, Jesus has the same discussion in Mark 10 with a Pharisee, and uh, it's a bit dense of a discussion because you dip into a much larger Jewish discussion about when is divorce permissible because in Deuteronomy 24, um, Moses talks about what to do uh, to give a letter of or a certificate of divorce. And first of all, and I just want to say what Jesus says in that situation, Jesus or God is not into divorce. Um, that's, um, it wasn't that way from the beginning. 
and it's only a concession to our hardness of hearts. So God is not into divorce because he's a God of love, of um, exclusive intimacy. Um, that said, um, the discussion in Mark 10 is about what reasons you could have for possibly divorcing your wife and giving her a certificate. Um, and, of course, it is the wives that are um, being discussed here, or, or the, uh, because at that time they were still sort of thought of as property uh, of men. And the letter of divorce was actually given to them to protect them, to allow them to remarry. Um, so, for starters, Deuteronomy 24 is about protecting women, um, or the, in this case, um, those who would have been more disadvantaged. Um, the discussion in a Jewish, um, um, at the time, it, um, there's two schools of thought, uh, Hillel and Shammai. One of them says you can divorce them for any reason, and another one says only for very limited uh, you know, set of circumstances. And Jesus sides with the stricter side. So he says adultery. Now, with that, I want to say um, adultery, so that's the, the reason why it's permissible to divorce, according to Jesus. Adultery in Jesus' definition is wider than just the act, and you know, we know this from the Sermon of the Mount. And I would want to say to you um, that, um, and I have to say this carefully, and you might help me, um, it might be, um, it's not just permissible, it might even be necessary at times that if the vow of fidelity, if the exclusive love that was vowed to one another is broken or abused, or um, if the one side not submitting to the other side mutually, if that is happening, then that is, I think, a permission, perhaps sometimes a necessity, to split. And I say this very carefully because, um, again, what's behind the question, really, um, when is it permissible to um, marry and or divorce and remarry might be that there's perhaps greater anxieties and heartaches behind that and I don't know. Um. I think um, I'd only want to add that um, it's important that while we understand that broader definition of adultery that we don't use it um, as an excuse for not trying every possible way to reconcile because um, the whole nature of God is a God of forgiveness, mm -hmm. um, a God of restoration, of fixing broken relationships. And that ought to be our primary mm -hmm. approach. But I think there's also this recognition that sometimes after every attempt, mm -hmm. it's still just not possible to restore that relationship. And I think in that context, there needs to be an understanding of the extraordinary capacity of God to be able to judge the individual circumstances in each person's case and that the overriding understanding we have is that uh, God loves people no matter how messed up um, their relational life might be and his hope and his aim and his um, provision for those people is um, to repair the damage as best it can possibly be done. And, and that means that for people, for instance, after divorce, um, God doesn't wipe his hands of people in that situation, you know. Um, he's um, very concerned to help them to be restored and to, um, to recover and to grow through that difficult experience and, um, and move towards becoming the people that he has in mind for them to become. And so it's, it's a big journey. And um, I think we... Um, 
the divorce is so common in our society that we can um, sometimes minimise the seriousness mm -hmm. of the pain and suffering that it causes in um, family life. Um, it's a very difficult thing and um, uh, I won't go on about it, but um, a lot of my time in the clinic is spent working with um, parents and also children who have been through that very painful experience. And um, the important thing to get across is that God loves every single one of those people. Let me, let me one, say one or two things. Um, I know statistically that um, a lot of Australians experience domestic abuse. And so there's a fair chance that some of you are watching or in this room are in a situation like that. And I want to say from a Christian platform, it is not okay if this happens. Like spiritual, physical, sexual, or financial abuse is not okay. It is breaking the vow it is breaking the fidel fidelity that was, you know, um, promised. And um, this is something that you don't need to endure as unto the Lord necessarily, right? So talk to somebody, um, call somebody, um, don't, yeah, um, but remarriage was another question. Um, and so I think you, you touched on that. Um, because God doesn't just leave you out in the cold, I think remarriage is, is fine. Um, uh, within those parameters that were mentioned. Yeah, I'd, I'd just uh, jump in and say that thanks for bringing that up because really um, it's distressing to me that um, there are Christian families where violence and abuse is occurring and um, there's a misunderstanding in that situation by Christians um, that they should just put up with it some way please get help um, it's not all right and it's not your duty to suffer in those circumstances very good and the things that you're describing are, are other acts of unfaithfulness aren't they yeah. 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 wow great amazing answers aren't they amazing wisdom that we have here all right sandy <laughs> Um, what's going to happen at the end of the world? What are, what <laughs> no, to, to, frame it, to frame it more uh, eloquently, um, does, does Door of Hope uh, as a church, as a community, um, as leaders, as spiritual overseers, do we have a formal position when it comes to end times theology? Uh, including rapture and the great tribulation and all these things? Um, or is it up to the individual believer to kind of figure this out for themselves or discern it for themselves? Actually, this question was given to both Andrew and I. So uh, <laughs> Andrew's going to talk about the Church of Christ uh, position and what we do here, and then I'm going to answer what we actually teach. Is that Okay. Yeah, I think um, I'll keep this part very short and pass it right back to Sandy. But um, I think uh, I would say this, that one of the um, important um, understandings about Churches of Christ um, generally is that we try to major on major things and minor on minor things. Where there's multiple opinions or 
difference of opinion or scripture is not that clear, um, we don't fail to talk about that and to teach that and to put the various um, views forward, but we don't make a big song and dance about holding to one particular view as the only true and correct way. In certain other areas that we would regard as core to the Christian faith, like for instance um, salvation by faith alone for argument's sake, the sacraments and so on, then we would have quite strong views about that. That means that churches of Christ across Australia um, have people who have quite a wide variety of theological views on certain what we would broadly regard as um, lesser priority issues and we are very comfortable to allow that difference of opinion. So over to Sandy. Okay, when's it all going to happen? <laughs> I had a little chat with Christoph about this one on Friday as well. Both of us joined mission societies that didn't make us sign up that we believed in a certain scheme of events. In the 60s, 70s, it was very important to know exactly which view of the second coming you ascribed to. For some people, it was more important than salvation. More books were written in those days about the second coming than anything else. That's quite tragic, isn't it? Quite tragic. And uh, so I do believe that we need to know that there is going to be an end of this heaven and this earth as we know it. There is going to be a recreation, a new heaven and a new earth. There is going to be a time when Jesus does come again. And it's all about Jesus again. I jokingly said to the team before that every answer today will be about Jesus. And that's the correct answer. Jesus is coming again. It's about Jesus. What will happen? Well, all of creation will be renewed, recreated. We will have new bodies. We will know each other. We will have a new heaven and a new earth, and it will be centered around Jesus. And we will be fellowshipping together. We talk about the kingdom of God which is the language we use here at Door of Hope. The kingdom is here now with the first coming of Jesus. He came and he came with him and said, the kingdom of God is here. The rule of Jesus in this world is available to us today by faith through Jesus. This kingdom means, yes, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom of love, but we don't see that fully yet. But one day, it will break into our world in all its fullness. And there will be worship like we've never known before, better than Door of Hope. There will be time with God, face-to-face, -face, intimacy, and there will be fellowship, one with another. And that is our hope. There will be no sin. There will be no evil, no hatred, no pain, no mental illness, no physical illness. I long for the day when it's just about Jesus and those who are in Christ are the ones who will be there to enjoy it. More coming up, we hope, in another series. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, maybe one more before we go to some of the questions that have come in throughout the last uh, half hour or so. Um, 
Oh, which one? Gosh. All right. Um, okay, Christoph and Andrew again, tag team on this one. How, how can we build bridges and relate to people in the scientific community whose science is their religion? Again, good question. Um, but again, the assumption is here that a scientist or that scientists have you know, science as a religion. And that's actually only true of a very few, uh, and particularly those that aren't very well respected by um, other scientists. Um, we won't mention names. Um, I would say, as a Christian, we, it would behoove us to listen more. Um, if you want to build bridges, you have to listen. Uh, you have to learn what the other side thinks. And I don't think that science and faith are actually on opposite sides, that there is this dichotomy. I think that's just all like a fake um, distraction, really, um, a fake thing. Um, because, you know, a scientist looks at the how and uh, a person of faith looks at the why or what's behind that. And science methodologically excludes God from answers, but you know, I don't think any uh, serious scientist would therefore immediately jump to the conclusion that God doesn't exist, or at least they shouldn't if they're real scientists. Um, and just point in case, there's many religious people who are scientists. Take uh, Francis Collins, the father of the Human Genome Project, or um, Georges Lemaitre, who came up with the Big Bang Theory, not the, not the show. Um, um, the show's um, better. Yeah. <laughs> but so I'm just saying it, that's, um, that is actually um, not a real distinction, I think. And so I think it would be good if you want to build bridges, just listen to people, have coffee with people or tea. Um, and in fact, we as Christians perhaps should eat some humble pie because all of you right now have a little machine in your pocket that is built with scientific principles following the scientific method that is talking to space and um, you know so and take medicine you all go to the doctor and that's also science um, so I think we we need to be a bit um, perhaps more humble as Christians to listen first and then ask some pointed questions I don't know that's just mine. yeah I, I completely agree in fact um, uh, many of my um, science friends and people that I read and know of are absolutely committed Christians and um, uh, they don't have any problem at all um, with using the scientific method to um, help advance their understanding of science and, and uh, develop things that will be helpful and useful to people in society um, at the same time holding firmly to, the, to their belief. And I think it, I completely agree with you, Christoph, that it's a bit of an artificial kind of distinction. In fact, um, I would approach a conversation with a scientist in the same way that I would anybody else and just uh, get to know them, as you've said, and, um, and try to sh uh, share Jesus' love with them. Yeah. Yeah. Can I put in a throw, throwaway line? Uh, I remember being taught many years ago, true science and true scripture is never in conflict. Sometimes it's our theology that needs a bit of an overhaul. Yeah, I think um, science is about trying to discover the truth and um, really good scientists know that it's an ongoing process. Um, just a quick example, when medical students graduate from medical school, they think they know everything. 
within seven years of their graduation, about 60 to 80% of what they've learnt is redundant, not relevant or wrong. So um, in medicine, the um, knowledge doubling curve is going at such a rate that um, uh, we have to be constant learners. And many of the things that we learned a few years ago are now proven to be wrong. So um, the idea that a scientific discovery locks something in for eternity as being true is not actually accurate. And good scientists know that. Fantastic. Well, we've got a few minutes left, so we're going to dive into some of the questions that have come through this morning. Um, and uh, a lot have come through, so thank you so much. And um, we aren't going to be able to get to all of them, but what we will uh, endeavour to do is to um, use these in future similar kinds of um, situations, series, uh, meetings, um, church services, and we can answer them in the future as we go. Or alternatively, uh, I'm sure most of these guys will be available at the front just to have a chat to. If you've got something so burning that you just cannot <laughs> let it be, uh, maybe come up and politely um, uh, ask one of these guys. But um, two minutes, Sandy. <clears throat> can a Christian be gay? Yeah. Two minutes. That was... Two seconds. Two seconds. <laughs> Maybe unpack that a little bit. I'll unpack that a little bit. Can a liar be a Christian? Can a person who's committed murder be a Christian? I think that we trust the Holy Spirit within to lead us into truth, to correct us and guide us in the paths of Jesus. And that is the role of the Spirit of God through maybe teaching, through, but without conviction of any of our sins, <laughs> uh, we would have problems and none of us would be here today. So can a gay person be Christian? I would say yes. I don't know about these other people. Will they go to heaven if they are in Christ? Is their sin worse than yours? I'll leave you to answer that. It's not up to us to judge that, is it? <laughs> um, all right, good. Quick answers. All right, here we go, another one. Um, uh, Dr. Andrew, people would love to know, uh, have you experienced um, miraculous healing um, from an answer to prayer or um, whatever the circumstances uh, in your uh, career as a doctor? Yeah, absolutely. And... Um in fact, I can describe a particular case where a um, Christian um, mentor of mine um, suffered a um, spinal cord stroke, which meant that he was suddenly paralysed um, below the waist. And um, I was um, in the situation when I was immediately there and uh, was able to be aware of what the diagnosis was. And um, I prayed for my brother and laid hands on him and asked for God to heal him and uh, he was up and walking about 24 hours later. This is, you know, quite remarkable because it's a rare kind of stroke and it tends to be quite devastating and it doesn't generally get better like that. So, simple answer. Um, I, I want to be careful, I suppose, in my career, you would um, kind of get the idea that maybe there's some gift of healing or something like that as a consequence that 
comes because of training as a doctor. I don't necessarily um, think that, but um, I would say that God uses extraordinary means to heal people, um, and he also uses ordinary means to heal people, and among the ordinary means are the natural, amazingly created human body's capacity to heal itself in very difficult situations. Um, we are wonderfully made and, um, and God knows that. He doesn't choose to miraculously intervene on every occasion, but sometimes he does and I've certainly experienced it. Christoph, what's the best translation of the Bible? In 30 seconds. The Greek. <laughs> um, um, well, it, I like literal translations, right? Um, what do you mean by literal? That go word for word and sound very um, awkward in English. But um, every translation is an interpretation. And so you're entrusting yourself to the group of usually men um, who translate the scriptures, and you just have to know that, that you're entrusting yourself to this group, which is why we look at similar or several translations. I personally like the New American Standard Version because it's fairly literal, um, but um, yeah, that's that. All right, and uh, two more questions. Christoph, can God make a burrito that's too hot for him to eat? Too, <laughs> too hot for him to eat. Too spicy. Oh dear, this is one of those. Um, no, so can God rock. lie would be a sim uh, an equal question, right? So it's asking um, a logical impossibility kind of question. And so the answer is no, God cannot lie uh, because that's not a possibility. So just because you've put the word God into the sentence doesn't make it a possibility. That's the, the quick answer. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> All right. Okay, uh, well, we are going to wrap up now, but with one more question um, for Sandy, uh, which will lead really nicely into uh, a time of sharing and communion together. Um, and the question was, how do you find a relationship with God? And uh, maybe the three of us will, will leave you to that. That wasn't even engineered. That was a genuine question. Very good. Because we're going to have a time of communion. And uh, you would have been given... A little handout. You know my feeling about these, but never mind. <laughs> it's a symbol. Uh, and it's not about this. It's about who we are. Who we are and who has made us who we are. We are people who are in Christ. And the question that was given is, how do I have a relationship with Jesus? I want to say this, but get it right. The sin issue has been totally dealt with by Jesus. You got that? The sin issue has been totally dealt with by Jesus. And as people who are broken and maybe sinners who've not really come to that truth, we're invited to believe that what Jesus did about the sin issue what Jesus did about living among us as the final word from God. He became 
the message, the word. He lived among us. He went around doing good. He gave teachings that were totally radical. So following Jesus will be following, believing first of all, that he is the one sent by God to deal with the sin problem through his death when he took our brokenness, our sin, our woundedness upon himself and said, that's finished. Believing that. Believing that he did really die our death in our place and that he rose again and he has a resurrected life. He ascended to the Father and today Jesus is still Jesus, seated at the right hand of God and he invites us to be in Christ with him believing that we too can be dead to the sin because it's been dealt with and alive to Jesus. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the one who gave himself for us, who loves us eternally. And even right now, if we've been convicted that things are not good, by faith, we say, come Lord Jesus. I want you to be my Lord. And if you have no faith that all of this is true, the invitation is there to invite this God through Jesus into your life to go on the discovery and discover that this God, this Jesus, gives new life, eternal life, and we will live forever with each other in the presence of our God. So we remember, and this is what it's all about, remembering a bit of bread and a bit of wine to say that Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. I become sin, the just for the unjust, so that you might have life. I've given my blood, I've died for you, so that you may have life. Do this if you're a lover of Jesus in remembrance of me. As the family of God, let us take the bread and the wine and drink in remembrance. Father God, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming and becoming our life. Spirit of the living God, thank you for your indwelling that you are with us, leading and guiding and teaching. We remember and say thank you very much for who you are and who we are because of Jesus. Amen.